Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. We're going to read the first five verses. And then we'll read one verse from Hebrews 11. Just as you do that, let's bow in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, draw us close as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. Let the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear this evening, the voice of truth and grace. Amen. Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram, to, the, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. And let's turn in our Bibles then to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is the word of God. Jacob is hardly the best of role models. He came out of the womb grasping at his twin brother's And he continued his life grasping, grasping at material wealth, at beauty, at security, at acceptance. And, And in his grasping, he operated by a means of human strength and wisdom. He used trickery and deception to get what he wanted out of life. In many ways, he reminds me of the film Catch Me If You Can, in that film, Steven Spielberg film. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the part of a, 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 true, a true from life, true from history figure called Frank Abagnale, who allegedly conned his way into millions of pounds, of dollars, I should say, as a young man by posing as a pilot, a doctor, and then a lawyer. Unsurprisingly, it's been found out that his story, the true story, may actually be a bit of a scam itself. 
But in both cases, in the cases of Frank and in the cases of Jacob, we see something that's really quite human, sadly quite normal. The impulse to grasp, to grasp at power, sex, money, fame, whatever you want, by any means possible. Jacob isn't a model man. He's not a hero. He's not a moral example for us to follow. He's a bit of a scoundrel when, he, when we read what he gets up to. But in the end, he's an example of faith. An example of faith. His story is a story of amazing grace. The grace of a God who provides, who protects, and who gives him his presence right throughout his life, even though he doesn't deserve it. As we looked at Isaac this morning, we learned that faith, even though it falters, looks forward. Looks forward to what God has planned and promised. In the end, it does that. This was true of Isaac, and it's also true of Jacob. His faltering, his failure was even more obvious than his father Isaac's. But in the end, we see him as, well, we've just read it in Hebrews 11, as an old man, a pilgrim, leaning on his staff, ready to die, but looking forward in faith. He's trusting that God will bring him through this last leg of the journey, the leg of death. But before we get there to the end, like we did this morning, we're going to travel with Jacob through his life to see how God brought him to this place of faith and formed this faith in him. And we'll have to take a bit of a different approach this evening. There's a lot more material on Jacob in the Bible than on Isaac. And so I've broken it down into seven episodes. But don't worry, I'll spend a couple of minutes on each. We'll race through it quickly, okay? But as we go through them, hopefully you'll see that they form one story. And it's not really so much about Jacob. It's about God and his grace and his faithfulness towards Jacob, towards us. Episode one is Jacob's departure. We've just read it in Genesis 28. It's where we left off Isaac's story. Jacob has connived with his mother to ensure that he receives the blessing that his father intended to go to Esau. But Jacob doesn't have his eyes on those eternal promises that God gave to Abraham. Not yet. He's not looking to the heavenly city like his father and I is. He wanted to quote his father, the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. He wants servants, land, power. He wants a name for himself. He's grasping at what he can get from God. He's not interested in the giver, God himself. But still, his father passes on that blessing from Abraham and God has designed it this way. God Almighty is the title that Isaac gives to God. He will be with you, Jacob. And even as, as Jacob flees the consequences of his own sin and his own stupidity, we see that God Almighty is with him. But a pattern for the rest of his life, at least for most of his life, has been set here. 
he will continue to grasp and he will continue to trick and deceive people to get what he wants, but he will live a restless life. He'll reap the consequences of sin. He will have to run away from family again and he will be tricked. And so we learn something early on about sin. Sin is attractive. It's alluring. But if we begin to grasp, we'll never be satisfied. Sin will always leave us wanting more and more. And it will always lead to devastation. But we learn something else about sin. In spite of sin, God is gracious. God Almighty has the power to break even the most stubborn pattern of sin in our lives. That's what he'll do with Jacob. Episode two in Jacob's life then is Jacob's dream. And we read about that in Genesis 28, verse 10 to 22. Jacob's en route to Laban now, his uncle. He's going to get himself a wife. And on the way, he's blessed with one of the most amazing theophanies in scripture, a vision of God. The God of heaven appears at the top of a great stairway with angels coming down and going up. And it's as if the grace of God and the blessing and presence of God is coming from heaven straight down to Jacob. And God then gives some gracious promises to Jacob, ones that we've already heard, slightly different words. But he says in Genesis 28, 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. And so Jacob wakes up from his vision dream and he's amazed. God is here. And he calls the place Bethel, house of God. God is dwelling with me. But rather than receive these promises from God with, with thanks and with humility, he actually continues to grasp at what he can get from God. God's material blessing, which God has already promised him. You'll have what you need, Jacob. But he kind of tries to barter with God in a kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, God, way. God will be my God if, Jacob says, if he gives me food for the journey and clothes for my back, then I'll trust him, then I'll serve him, then I'll tithe. He wants God's gifts more than he wants God's, God himself. Jesus talks about this scene early on in his ministry to Nathaniel and Philip, two of his first disciples. He says that, they will begin to see Jesus do some miracles, things that only God can do. And as they do that, it's as if they will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, but not down a stairway, ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, I am the true way to heaven. I'm the true Bethel. I'm God with you on earth. Jesus 
as we discovered this morning, he's the substance, he's the fulfillment of all of these promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to Israel. He is God with us. And as Paul would write, his spirit living in us is the guarantee of our inheritance. The inheritance is that heavenly city that the patriarchs look to. But we have God in us, guaranteeing us that that promise will be fulfilled. That place is our home. God has, no, has offered us nothing less than his very presence with us. As we travel as pilgrims through this life, and he promises us nothing less than his presence forever with us. The question is, will we receive that gift with the open hands of faith, empty hands? Or will we grasp at God and try to get what we can out of him in life? Is God mere damnation insurance? Or are we living for him? Because he's all we need and all we want. God's grace doesn't give up on us when we don't live like that. God's grace doesn't give up on wayward children like Jacob. And so we move on to the next episode, Jacob's wives. And we see this in chapter 29. And here's the he headline of Jacob's search for a wife. The deceiver is deceived. Laban promised Jacob the girl of his dreams, Laban's daughter, Rachel. She was very beautiful to Jacob. But instead, he married off Leah, his elder daughter. Leah, who Jacob was not interested in, not one bit. He was tricked then into working 14 years, as you know, for Laban. A kind of double bride price for getting Leah and Rachel. But we mustn't think of this as some sort of divine payback. As if God is just trying to say, well, this is what it feels like, Jacob. So there. No, God's not petty. He's gracious. He's actually disciplining Jacob. He's molding him. And yes, he is showing him what it feels like to be on the receiving end of sin. But he's also showing him through his disappointment where true contentment lies. What we want in life, even the good things, they never get, give us true contentment. And so our father, he disciplines us as well. Again, we're back to the writer in Hebrews. And, and he says, he says this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God is treating you as sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe you've been doing a bit of gardening this summer and weather like this. Weeding, hoeing, raking, digging. It's not pleasant work. Few people enjoy it. But in the end, it's worth it. It's necessary and it's worth it. Our gardens become tame and tranquil rather than wild and unruly. How much more true is that if we think of our souls as a garden where God is at work? When you endure hardship and trials and learn to overcome temptation, when God prizes our fingers off the things of this world, 
and teaches us to grasp him by faith so much better. But it's not pleasant at the time and it's even confusing and bewildering. Jacob still has some hard ground to be plowed in his life. But he isn't thinking that way. He isn't thinking of his father lovingly at work within him. And so he chooses the hard path. We consider then episode four, Jacob's sons. We see this in the end of chapter 29 and and throughout chapter 30, the story of how Jacob received, well, 11 of his 12 sons who would become the nation of Israel. And Isaac, if we go back to his father, Isaac caused chaos in his household by having favorites and by allowing Rebekah to have a favorite. Well, Jacob mirrors that and he even multiplies it because he has a favorite wife. And then he has favorite sons, Joseph, and later Benjamin. And again, this causes chaos in his household. There's envy and rivalry and bribery between the two wives, Rachel and Leah. There's point scoring over who has more children. And there's even hiring out of Jacob. Who will get to sleep with him tonight? And you read it and you think, what sort of family is this? It's the sort of family that a tabloid journalist would love to go and interview. It's a family without a godly leader. That's the problem. Jacob is more interested in keeping the peace rather than challenging people and challenging himself and doing things God's way. Nevertheless, God is at work through this really dysfunctional family. To do what? To bring about the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's his plan. And it isn't thwarted by Jacob's selfishness and foolishness. We move on then to episode 5. And we see Jacob's prosperity. We see that towards the end of chapter 30 and right throughout chapter 31 of Genesis. Jacob is getting richer and richer as he works for Laban. He seems to have gone beyond his 14 years and he's happy to work there and accumulate wealth. And Laban's happy with this because he's getting wealthy as well. But when Jacob has done his time and wants to move on, he asks to leave. And so Laban offers to settle his wages with him. And Jacob, under the pretense of being honest and fair, he says, well, okay, I'll take the speckled and the spotted uh, cattle, the sheep, sorry, and you take the ones that are unmarked, unblemished, and then we'll know whose belongs to who. Laban's happy with this. And then in a rather strange story, through his own, what he thinks is human ingenuity, He makes himself wealthy off Laban. It seems to be some sort of ancient form of of genetic breeding program, but there's more superstition to it than science. But God uses it to give Jacob more and more and more flocks. His flocks are stronger than Laban's. But then Jacob tries to sneak off behind Laban's back. God's blessing Jacob, but... But Jacob, as far as he's concerned, he's tricking Laban and running away with the goods. Jacob's hand is ever grasping and his heart 
still deceptive. Again, his deception is a source of family breakdown. And he's had to flee the scene of the crime again. In the end, Laban catches up with him. And they have it out. And Jacob starts to show signs that his heart is softening. His heart, his conscience, sorry, has not been completely seared. He, he does recognize now, well, no, God, God is at work in my life. And he says this to Laban. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Despite his own grasping and his own grafting as well, his own hard work, he recognizes that God's grace must be the true source of everything that's happening to him. This is God's gift. And that brings us to episode six, Jacob's God. We read about this in chapter 32 and 33 of Genesis. Through all of Jacob's conniving and selfish behavior, God has never abandoned him. Remember, we thought about this this morning, God swore an oath by himself. He has a plan and he's going to carry it out regardless of what these sinners do. And he's not doing it because he looks at Jacob's life and is pleased with it. He's doing it out of sheer grace. How often we think, even if it's some, in some recess in the back of our minds, that, that God is on our side because we have stuck close to him. But no, he is stuck close by us. Even in those darkest moments when we're far from where we should be. Jacob heads home now at the Lord's command and he finds himself trapped. He realizes that Esau is coming to meet him. He's trapped between an uncle, his uncle Laban, he can't go back there, and an angry brother who, as far as he's concerned, is coming to kill him. Remember, when he left his home, that's what Esau wanted to do. Jacob doesn't know it. But he's going to run straight into the arms of God himself in the middle of all of this. He's come as far as his own human strength and trickery will take him. And now he's at the end of his rope. It's finally sinking in that he needs God. And he needs God's help. And so he confesses, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me. That's a prayer that we could do well to have on our lips more often. God isn't finished teaching Jacob the true way of faith. Jacob, to try and calm his brother down, sends gifts to Esau, literally to appease Esau's face. But God teaches him through an unexpected encounter that it is God's face that he needs to see. And it is God's power that he needs to fear, not Esau's. And so we read in one of the most mysterious uh, sorry, portions of Scripture, Jacob finds himself wrestling with God. 
Jacob sends his wives and his children and his servants across the Jabbok River and he's left alone. And we read that all night he is wrestling with a man, a mysterious figure. But the man reveals his identity. It's God, God himself. God disables Jacob in this wrestling match. He leaves him limping, but Jacob is changed. He'll never be the same again. In fact, he's given a new name at this point, Israel. He leaves limping, but he's finally resting on God's grace and God's goodness. He says this, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He no longer needs to fear Esau's face, who he will see soon. He no longer needs to worry about what's going to happen. He's everything he needs. He's the blessing and favor of God, and he realizes it now. When he meets Esau, well, this is what he says. He tells Esau, this much that God has been gracious to me and so his gifts are no longer bribes they're gifts he says please Esau accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough it reminds me at this point of Zacchaeus from the gospel of Luke Zacchaeus wasn't living a life like a true son of Abraham he was cheating and stealing of God's people But after he met with Jesus, he was a changed man, wasn't he? A man who was no longer grasping at the bags of money. He gave away freely because he didn't need it. And Jesus recognized this as evidence of true repentance, true change. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus said, since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. He finally had the faith of his father, Abraham. What's the evidence that we have received God's grace? That we belong to him? Our hands don't grasp tightly at the things of this world. We hold them loosely. We're happy to give them away. We accept it if they're taken away. Because we have all we need in Christ. Finally, we reach the final episode of Jacob's life, Jacob's dying faith. We read about this in Genesis 35. We also have Genesis 47 to 49. Clearly, we're not going to read all of those. This is mixed up with Joseph's life. And then what we read in Hebrews 11. I say it's the final episode, but really we hear about Jacob here and there dotted throughout the pages of Genesis. And we learn through the end of his life that he still had a lot to learn. He made mistakes. He did things wrong. He's learning to walk by faith like a toddler. He tolerates household gods being in his camp. He still favors Joseph and Benjamin over his other sons. But God still graciously blesses him and confirms those covenant promises to him. At the end of his life, He's been reunited with his son Joseph, who he thought was dead in Egypt. And we see, as we read in Hebrews eleven twenty one, a man leaning on his pilgrim staff, and he's looking to a better country. He's no longer looking to the things of this world. By faith, Jacob, when dying, 
Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Moses is, or sorry, he, the writer to Hebrews is combining two passages from Genesis. In chapter 47, we read Jacob making his son Joseph swear that he will send him back, his body that is, back to the promised land. He doesn't want it to rest in Egypt. That's not where God's people belong. And in the next chapter of Genesis, we see old Jacob on the brink of death, blessing Joseph's sons who will become tribes of Israel. And then his own sons who will become tribes of Israel too. And when he does that, he he says some of the most beautiful words in scripture. He shows that his heart has been tamed changed, transformed by God, and that he's looking to better blessings. He says this, Genesis 48, verse 18, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And Jacob's about to walk the valley of the shadow of death here. But he knows he has a shepherd who will lead him by the hand. A shepherd who has been leading him by the hand. A redeemer to bring him through death. And as he dies, he passes on these great gospel promises to the next generation. He knows God will fulfill them even though he won't see them in his life. His eyes of faith are finally looking forward. As we close, there's a lot we could draw from that. Perhaps you feel in your stage of life that you're coming closer and closer to that dying in faith face that Jacob is at. And what do we learn from how Jacob dies? Take the hand of your shepherd. Be assured that the sins and failures and regrets of your past life are forgiven and forgotten. Pray for the next generation. Pray that they will carry on this great gospel, sharing that. And then look forward to the coming rest, to home. There's an important lesson for all of us here. When you leave this world, no matter what you've accumulated, it's gone. It's worthless. You'll no longer be able to grasp onto it, the nice car, the nice house, the savings, the admiration of your friends, the career you've built, the experiences and the memories, they'll all slip away. Better to fix your eyes now on what is freely offered in Jesus Christ. The dying thief realized that, didn't he? Before it was too late. He'd spent his life grasping at wealth and he'd ended up on a Roman cross. But he found himself, by the grace of God, dying beside the Savior. The only one who could guide him to the kingdom of God, a place he knew he didn't belong. And so he turns to Jesus, all pride gone, 
And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And as now Savior replied, today you will be with me in paradise. Death couldn't keep Jesus. And it can't keep those who are joined to him by faith. In him we have something far more than life. We have eternal life. The lives of Isaac and Jacob and even the dying thief, they teach us that we could learn this the hard way. We could spend most of our lives wrestling with God. Or we could give up and open our hands and receive his grace. We could learn it the easy way. Writer to Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. May our prayer be that that's how we'll live and then that's how we'll die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the rich, rich lessons that we can learn from these characters in history that you have placed in your word. We thank you that you give us examples, not of how to live a good life, but how to live by faith. We thank you that they did do many good things. We pray that we'd learn from that. We recognize that they did many bad things. We pray that we'd be warned by that. Help us ultimately like they did, but us with greater clarity to fix our eyes on Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.